Broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria, you're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. And a very good morning to our listeners and to the crew in in the studio this morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Hello. We can't really talk about football anymore, I've been told. That's over for the year. Yeah, done and dust. Well, (coughs) trade period, we could get into that if you want. Not really. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But does anyone want to have a guess at how long or how many days it is until Christmas? Oh, jeez. Okay. 60 something? Um, Well, actually, you're adding that's that's a pretty uh, small guess. It's 82. Oh, 82 days. Bring it on. Incredible. So we've actually, I don't know about you, but Christmas decorations, I have seen them in the oh, stores. Already? Yeah. Oh, already? Yeah. Along with Halloween decorations. Right. Oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Halloween. Halloween's becoming a bigger thing, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yeah. It, is. Yeah. it is. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, the continued Americanization of Australia, but I don't know. <laughs> kind of like it. <laughs> I kind of think the retailers are driving it. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. More people yeah. buying candy and costumes. Yep. yep. But it's good fun as well. It is a bit it of fun. Yeah. I think you, fun. you said on the last <coughs> podcast, Louis, that you'd taken your daughter out to do a bit of trick-or-treating. Was it you last yeah, year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. Yep, we, we did that. And it was a lot of fun. So mm. as the only person in the studio who has a, a child, mm. it is a lot of fun for kids. I uh, don't know about that. You might want to ask Steph if that's actually the case. The what? only person in the studio that has a child? Oh, uh, well, I've got a child. It's Joel. Oh, okay. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, Jeez, like, that what? just went straight over everyone's head. Yeah, yeah it, like, it did. What, what did crashed and burned, eh, hey, Maverick? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking of something yeah, else completely. Yeah, so was completely. I. Like, yeah, well, oh, I did it first, but then I realised. Okay, yeah. yes. It's yes. the man-child. Yes. <laughs> Steph has the man-child, Joel. So, Joel, do you enjoy Halloween? Oh, I still wear nappies. <laughs> <laughs> On nights out. <laughs> Joel's not into trick or treating, really. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the hot topics of the day, Joel, we are going to start with you. The media headlines are a bit havoc this morning. Uh, 40, 40, yeah. was it $40 Ma- well, million wiped off the. Well, if you, have, yeah, if you have a look at the Australian Financial Review this morning. ASX falls $44 billion from the boards. Uh, growth fears savage Australian shares. The, the ABC has the headline, ASX tumbles $74 billion in two days over global recession fears. Uh, we even had your mum call up and just uh, ask me last night whether or not everything was okay. Oh, bless. <laughs> so I think... You do I, know she'll move in with us if you don't get her stocks right. <laughs> well, if your mum's calling me up, it pretty much signals the bottom, I think. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's a leading indicator. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the mother index? <laughs> it's, it's when the last person to find out actually what's going on in the world calls you up. It's pretty much a sign that either we've uh, hit the peak or hit the bottom and we've right. reached an extreme. So, interestingly enough, I uh, checked the, the stock market this morning in the United States and, uh, the, AS, uh, and the S&P 500 had quite a, a reasonable bounce up around about 1% last night, but uh, tech stocks were and uh, growth stocks were up probably close to about 2%. So, uh, look, I don't know whether or not this is the bottom, but, um, you know, typically the, uh, when the fear and the panic 
sort of you know, starts to, to reach uh, to, to the last people to find out, it, it typically tends to be a sign that there's a turning point not too far away. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so where, where are we at really? Well, look, we have, I mean, we always go through this period of time, um, or almost always go through, you know, August, September, October with weak equity markets. And the headlines every year, they're different, right? But, this, but the results always seem to be the same. August, September, October always tend to just be poor returning months. They just seem to be very soft for, for stocks. Any reason why that that's the case? Well, the theory is there's no real great theory other than the fact that uh, it's summertime in the Northern Hemisphere and, and around about 80% of the world's capital is managed in the Northern Hemisphere and uh, all the fund managers go on holidays and uh, <laughs> <laughs> go to the sun, the yeah. Mediterranean, the Hamptons and yeah. uh, chill out. And the take their eye off the ball. And <laughs> no one's there to buy. So. Right. <laughs> wow. That's the theory anyway. But um, look, since uh, September, uh, since 1937, the average September performance of the US S&P 500 index, which is a measure of the largest 500 companies on the US stock market, is actually a 1% decline. So had you have invested from the start of September through to the end of September since 1937, you would have averaged a 1% decline over that period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you compound that, you uh, you know, no, you compound 1% over, what's that, almost uh, 90 years, mm. um, yeah, you would have been wiped out had, yeah. it, had you have just, you know, uh, invested in September from the start to the end. So it's indicative of the softness and the weakness that tends to happen around this, uh, around this period. Interestingly enough, this year for the month of August, the Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 1.7%. Uh, the S&P 500... Uh, lost uh, 1.8% and the NASDAQ lost 2.6% for the month of August, which you would think would probably be a a pretty poor sign for things to come. Well, in actual fact, it's uh, actually a very bullish sign. Uh, According to research conducted by LPL Research, the past 15 times the S&P 500 lost ground in August, the rest of the year saw positive returns every single time. So mm. it's uh, wow. if history is anything to go by, I would be cautious about getting too concerned and too defensive uh, right now. In fact, August almost all uh, sorry uh, October, even though it's famous for its large crashes and its large um, you know scary events. I think we had uh, uh, well we had Black uh, Black Monday in 1987 or Black Tuesday here in Australia. Um, we had uh, some some poor performance during uh, 2018 October as well, um, and it's uh, sort of been notorious for some big big declines and big crashes. But October often tends to be the point where stock markets bottom. In fact, most of the uh, stock market, even though the stock market tends to crash in October, it tends to also be where the stock market tends to stop falling as well. Mm. So um, we've had all sorts of uh, bad headlines. We've had you know we've had. Trump and the, and the announcement, well, it might be a bad headline depending on how you look at this, but there's a there's an impeachment inquiry on Trump. We've uh, also seen that the US has now launched a, a tariffs on the European Union and uh, there seems to be a bit of a trade spat bubbling with the US and, and the European Union now over uh, aeroplane tariffs and uh, support from several governments. They've put a tariff on whiskey. They've put a, yeah. Oh, they're no, prepared, no, yeah. Single malt scotch whiskey uh, right. is going to attract a 25% tariff yep. into the US. Ooh, 25%. Yeah. Well, you, you know, uh, the Americans have their bourbon and, the, yeah. and the, you know, the Europeans and the Scotch have their single so, malt whiskey. So right. Stick to Beeman Daniels. <laughs> Jack Daniels, <laughs> yeah. 
Um, we've obviously still got the, the US trade and uh, US China uh, uh, trade negotiations still going on. We've also got uh, uh, rising unrest in Hong Kong, one of the world's mm. financial centres. Mm. So, mm. you know, there's, there's plenty to be concerned about, but are, are these really going to be the catalyst for a major market decline? Look, I think not. Um, we've, we've spoken about this uh, many times that um, you really need a major boom and a major bubble before you start to see many major busts. Uh, we've talked about, you know, the 1920s and we've spoken about the, the boom times of post-World War and Japan's miracle. All of those ended in crashes. And right now, I think it's hard for anyone to say that we're in boom times at this yeah. point in time. Yeah. And in fact, usually, almost always, what breaks the uh, what breaks the economy is uh, central banks raising interest rates and, um, and uh, financial stress rising and defaults starting to rise. And then all of a sudden, you see a contraction in econ- economic conditions because of... Uh, a credit tightening that's not happening this this time around in fact we've just had the rba has lowered interest rates for the third time mm. uh, going from 1.5 percent down to 0.75 percent um, the u.s has lowered interest rates for the second time in three months going from two and a half percent down to two percent so uh european union is uh, starting their stimulus and quantitative easing program again so anything but tight financial conditions are being experienced right now um, yeah we're going through a bit of a slowdown uh, yes there are some plenty there's plenty of headlines to to be concerned about um, uh, that, that can give you concern but I think ultimately you need to f- focus on the things that really matter and financial stress is not rising in fact it's very benign at the moment we're seeing uh, uh, yes we did have a small inversion of the yield curve on the US uh, two and ten year treasury bond market but that's reversed very quickly now that the US has started cutting interest rates and in fact that's widening very quick usually what you would see leading into a major market peak is that the inversion persists all the way up until the market peak and so um, we're seeing fear, uh, you know, if investors are really optimistic and very um, bullish on stocks, usually that optimism persists while the market starts declining because people are non-believing that this is the actual peak and that's what helps mm-hmm. feed these these big corrections is the late realisation that it's uh, actually happening. Well, people are turning on a dime in terms of their optimism uh, and, and since we've had this uh, little correction over the past sort of week and a half or so, um, you know, fear has just uh, rever- uh, fear has become the pre- prevalent and prevailing emotion that we're seeing in the market by a range of different sentiment indicators. So, these are not the conditions that you would typically associate with a major market top. Uh, I think we're still in that trading range. And just a just an interesting point before I finish up here, um, Ned Davis Research. We might have touched on this uh, a number of um, publications ago, but. Uh, um, Ned Davis Research, a, a well-respected institutional research house out of the United States, had uh, put out some research on what typically tends to happen when the U.S. Federal Reserve starts cutting interest rates, uh, and uh, and and what the impact would be on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So these this data goes back all the way to the 1920s, and uh, what they found was that on average, if the U.S. enters a recession from the date of the first um, uh, rate cut within 12 months of the date of the first rate cut, the US stock market actually increases on average by 10.5%, even if the US economy enters a recession 12 months later. The US is not in recession, so even if the US recession, even if the US does enter a recession between now and this time next year, on average, the US stock market would be 10.5% up. But if, as we expect, um, uh, that the US doesn't enter a recession, the US stock market on average rises 23.5% over the next 12 months. So 
just be wary of getting too bearish. Uh, the news headlines are out there to sell papers and, and create some clickbait. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think uh, we just need to be a little bit patient, understand that this is part and parcel of investing in stocks and, and uh, all things being equal, the environment is actually more conducive for stock uh, returns to be more positive, more so positive over the next 12 months than what they are um, uh, to be negative. Mm. Good lead into Brett's next topic, which is we're going to discuss interest rate cuts that have just happened. Would this sort of um, market conditions scare people into not wanting to invest in property? Hard to say because a lot of what Joel mentioned there is US-based mm. and a lot of the people that are probably looking at buying a house here in Australia aren't, well, I can't say no, that I know that for a fact, but I would assume a lot of them are looking at their income and their own assets here yep. before they make a decision on, on investing in, in a new property. And- yeah. Uh, look, I think um, I should, should clarify, why do I give a stuff about the US so mm. much if you're just new to this program? Um, well, the US is the most dominant um, and influential factor. The US stock markets are the markets that uh, every other developed world equity market takes its lead from. So if you're, as I've said before, if you're not looking at the US stock market um, to get your understanding of where stocks might be ha- uh, heading, uh, then you're missing a huge a very important piece of the uh, puzzle to, to sorting yeah. that out. So, yeah, And yeah. I imagine people looking at, at buying a home or, or changing, changing dwellings, that might not be the biggest factor in their decision. Mm. Yeah. In fact, I'd say it's probably one of the minor factors, yeah. you know, unless someone's heavily invested in the stock market. Yes, it's just the, have a the headlines, though. People read them and they get spooked and you know, people tend to not want to spend. And If anything, I'd say it's probably more of a net positive for real estate. Yeah. I yeah. mean, you know... If you're scared of the stock market, they might be more willing to well, have to more property. money in property. Yeah. A lot yeah. of the conversations that we have with clients that first come to us, um, they tend to have a bias towards real estate because, <laughs> because of the news, the 24-hour mm. news cycle that surrounds stocks and they mm. tend to sort of believe that stocks are so risky and every time they see these news headlines they go oh look you know i I prefer real estate because i just think stocks are too risky Mm -hmm. well do you think that's changed over time or do you still think people have that attitude no i think i think it uh, it still persists today i think most people tend to find and take comfort in the fact that there tends to be not as much you know 24-hour news around every movement in the real estate market yeah Yeah, not as much volatility (laughs) yeah Mm. There's, there's different indicators as well. If you're, if you're going to be a successful share market investor, uh, then you are focused on these things overseas with uh, overseas interest rates and uh, what the, the head of policy is, uh, is saying in a certain markets. And th- there's all sorts of factors which are really abstract from our everyday life. Mm. Whereas in the property market, you look at very real and everyday factors is there a local school is there job Mm -hmm. opportunities it it still starts at the at the very top with those global big conditions but there's other factors to look for that are much closer to home in the property market Mm. which is why uh, a person who um, is new to investing is going to be able to more readily identify with successful property investing than successful share market investing. Yep, good one. And most people that are, are buying property are doing it for their own residences, and, and that's a necessity. You know, having somewhere to live is a necessity. Investing in shares would come after that. Mm. Yeah. So talk me through these interest rate cuts. What what is this? Sure. What does this mean for us? <laughs> okay, so 
well, well, first of all, let's clarify that it's it's a new record low. So the RBA cut the the interest rates in Australia to 0.75 percent. First time it's ever been below one percent. So what that should mean, and I do have some, some data here. Okay. So for a, a, an Australian family with a mortgage of four hundred thousand dollars, should the bank actually pass on that full quarter of a percent rate cut? Well, they, well, they in, would get seven hundred and twenty dollars a year. Okay, right. Should they? Or yeah, if yeah. they were. No, I'm to, saying yeah, if if they yeah, were to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I wasn't asking. Should, you a question. They, <laughs> I just say, should the banks pass yeah. that on in full? Well, yeah. that would mean that a, a family would have an extra seven hundred and twenty dollars over the year in their pocket. And what the government hopes is that $720 a year means they're buying that new flat screen TV or mm, somehow putting yeah. it back into the economy. Yep. That doesn't guarantee it's going to happen because they might just reduce their mortgage. Mm. But either way, the, the biggest challenge that the government are, are having now that the, the interest rate's been cut by a quarter of a percent is that none of the big four have passed that on in full. None. 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 Right. Really? No. Okay. So only recently, so of course it takes a little bit of time for, for the big four to pass on the amount that or clarify what amount they're going to pass on so that they've all made that statement now and the rates are flowing through so cba cut their rate by only 0.13 uh really Really? so roughly half wow okay full full rate cut anz 0.14 and westpac and nab at 0.15 i think we've spoken about this on another podcast but how do the banks work out how much they're going to pass on what what are their measures they call each other up and they Mm -hmm. collude (laughs) and they price fix (laughs) Okay, but what's then from a from the government's perspective? How come they're allowed to do it? Isn't there regulation around this? And no, 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 re- no regulation around it. Why, no, why no. wouldn't there be? Well, the banks well, are their own market. business. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, remember the the banks are in the business of uh, making money on loans, and and by not passing on. The full rate cut, they increase their net interest margin. Okay. So mm. that that allows them to make more money. Mm. And what about going to the bank that gives you the best um, rate? Yeah. You know, do so people move to what happens? Well, they do, but not typically the uh, the masses. So yeah. I would assume that when there's a rate cut, because people are in different cycles with their loans too. Some might be locked into fixed terms or whatever. So you're not going to see people moving instantly that there's a rate cut. But mm. anyone that's in a position where they can go through a review certainly should. Uh, and one of the main reasons, I've got a table here showing uh, some of the rate cuts. So this was before, uh, let me see, I've got CBA and NAB. So this would have been before ANZ and Westpac made their announcement. But CBA and NAB, after passing on their smaller rate cuts, their now lowest variable rate for CBA is 3.22%. So still really low compared to long-term yep. averages yeah. and NAB at 32 but if you wanted to look outside the major banks, you can get an interest rate as low as 2.69. Wow. Yeah. So obviously you've got to qualify and you need to go Who's, who's the offering right that? So that's uh, Reduce Home Loans. Reduce are offering 2.69. Okay. And then there's Homestar at 2.74 and Athena Home Loans at 2.84. Wow. And I've never even why, heard of these why, banks. That's what I was going to ask. Are they, why are they banks people or go finance companies? Good question. Yeah. I haven't got all that. Yeah. It's just a table of rates available. Yeah. But why would people not go and look out for an interest rate that is like that? Like, why wouldn't you go to one of these unknown? Have is there ever, more risk? What? No. What? Have you ever... Well, they're potentially... Potentially. For a lot of people, it's too hard. Yeah. Have you ever tried swapping home loans? Mm. It's a real pain in the ass. Mm. And, and it is a bit, a bit of work. 
Yeah. But if you if you were to gonna, a, if you're buying a property and you were to find you know the, the lowest rate, what if you're just going into the market to yeah. buy, it's probably easier to to find one of the cheaper loans. If you're refinancing, it can be a little bit more complex. But one of these unknowns, to, what's the risk if I was to go with them? Well, uh, the obvious risk would be that if with one of these, or the perceived risk is that with one of these smaller unknown banks, is that uh, they might be offering these discounts today, but what's their interest rate going to be? in 6, 12, 18 months' time once, mm. you know, once all of a sudden the, the, the cost of funds starts kicking in. But and do you, do you think business. they wouldn't be aligned to, you know, the major banks as well and go, well, we can't put it up that dramatically or do you think... You'd typically find that the major banks have cheaper funding costs than other banks because they are so large and financially strong compared to other competitors. So you'll tend to find that that the banks will tend to be able to access capital at a cheaper rate. Uh, and over time, the smaller banks might be able to offer discounts temporarily, but whether or not those discounts uh, can persist is, is questionable. Right. Now, that might change in future because I've been reading recently on two developments that have been happening. Uh, one is a new centralised banking platform or, or method of communicating between banks. Um, it's now being rolled out in Australia, and what you'll notice with your, uh, with your transactions is when you send money to someone else now from one bank to another, mm -hmm. it's almost instant. Yep. A new payment platform called OSCO. I don't know why they gave it that name, but anyway, that's the name, OSCO, uh, which means uh, my bank account with Commonwealth Bank transferring to your bank account with Westpac. I do it now, and you can instantly see the cleared funds in your account. It's yeah. not an overnight transaction anymore. Not all the banks are on this system yet, but uh, they will be soon. And that is a result of an entirely new platform, which means that in future, we're looking at the ability to have a bank account uh, identified through an email address, similar to PayPal, which means you can have a home loan linked through uh, an identifier like that instead of being your old style BSB and account number, which means your ability to choose your lender in future will be substantially different. The second thing I've been uh, reading recently is on uh, what they're calling uh, neobanks, mm -hmm. very small banks, uh, which are basically an app. Mm -hmm. An app which are authorised deposit-taking institutions in Australia, but to open an account is as simple as downloading an app to your iPhone mm -hmm. and going through a two-minute registration process and bang, you've got a bank account. Right. So the combination of that with the new payment system... And then these neobanks, once they've got enough deposits, they will start moving into the lending space. So just watch in the next few years for the current major banks with their legacy of a, a physical network mm -hmm. of branches and their legacy of 50-year-old products mm -hmm. with you know 80-year-old customers that still demand a certain level of service. They're going to be disrupted, mm -hmm. I think, interesting. in the next yeah. five years. Yeah. Mm, yep. So just watch that space on people's ability to refinance yeah. and there's going to be a new generation, Gen Y is coming. Yeah. It's funny because banking's not a sector I thought would be disrupted, but that makes really a yep. lot of sense. So. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. So mm. just, just watch out for that in refinancing in future. And, and mm. In fact, a lot of the, the majors are actually hurting themselves because they're making it difficult for you to go into the into the premises. So they're still, you know, keeping those overheads in some degree, but mm. they, they charge you extra for over-the-counter transactions now, mm, right. which is what they probably built their business on originally. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Whereas yep. if you just do all of your transactions online, it's typically a lower monthly fee. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, on the rate cut, 
I'm just having a look at a chart here that shows that the the last time we had a rate rise was in November, sorry, October 2010. And we're now in a cycle of 12 consecutive rate cuts since uh, October 2011. So wow. October 2011, it was 4.75. It's been cut consistently over that time to where we are now at 0.75. So we've lost 4% in that eight years. Jeez. Mm. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah. So, and, and as you said, Steph, if, if anyone is looking for a home loan or is in the position where they're wa- wanting to, to find out more about how they could get a better rate, well, speak to a good broker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't think you're tied into your bank just because you've always been there. A good broker will be able to assess your needs and, and navigate your way through this to take a lot of the headaches out of it. Mm. Yeah, good advice. Mm. And, and also these days, uh, a reason to not change your home loan while keeping the same savings account has been the use of an offset account. So it's really nice when your main transaction account uh, has the ability to offset the interest on your home loan account. And that's been a reason where if you're going to change your home loan, well, then you move your savings account to that bank as well. These days, with interest rates being below 4% and even below 3% being on offer, the value of an offset account is a lot less than what it used to be. So even if you, if you don't want to change all your direct debits and your credit cards and that sort of thing, then maybe you don't have to. Yeah. Just change your home loan mm. and then just have your other home loan from a from a different financial institution debited from your current transaction account Mm. so it doesn't mean changing all of your arrangements Mm. certainly something to think about that's for sure yep yep look guys we're going to throw to a quick break and we're going to be back after this short message want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund each day clients of united global capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. So I've got some more data that, uh, that I've been reviewing this week uh, in regard to the bounce back. So we've been talking for a, a number of weeks now about how the property market from a, a metric perspective has bottomed out, as in the declines have stopped and we're actually starting to see some appreciation. Uh, as that starts to wash through, we start to get some data to validate that and give us some, some figures around it. So Australia's two largest cities have seen bounce-backing home values over the past two months. So Sydney's recorded a cumulative rise of 3.3% and Melbourne up 3.2% over August and September this year. Wow, okay. Now, what I thought would be a, a good piece of information to share is where the change in dwelling values lies in the last 12 months for each of the capitals since the peak of the market approximately two years ago and what does that mean on a five-year position where are all these values mm. compared to where they were five years ago okay so and i think this is quite interesting because obviously when the market started declining everyone gets worried and mm-hmm. and obviously is, is sort of negative about the the market sentiment and, and what it means if we have a look at what it really has meant over the last five years and i'll, I'll just 
go through the main ones here. So Sydney over the past 12 months is down 4.8%. Over the past 12 months. Over the past 12 months. And that's also taking into account that 3% rise we've said over the last two months. So obviously it was down more than that on Mm. a rolling 12 months, but the last two months has brought it back up. Uh, Melbourne at 3.9%. And they're all, you know, in the negatives other than Hobart and Canberra with slight rises over 12 months. If we look at what that is since the peak, which we're sort of saying was around July 2017, Sydney are down 12% since the peak. Right. And Melbourne down 8%. Uh, Perth are the worst one, who are down 21% in that time. Or actually Darwin, the worst, down 30%. But over five years... That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously that's 12 months (laughs) and, you know, the peak, say, two years. But what does that mean in terms of the longer cycle? What, what is the actual position compared to five years ago? Well, the story's not so, so bad when you put this in perspective. So looking at five-year changes in dwelling values, Hobart are, are the one, you know, real shining light. Their value changes in five years is actually up 38%. 38? Significantly. Really? Wow. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and Melbourne and Sydney, well, believe it or not, even with those declines we've mentioned, if you bought Melbourne property, just if you're able to just buy a basket of it and say, okay, I'm just going to run the average value, you would have seen an increase over that five years of 26.1%. Jeez, you can't mm. complain with that. No. Yeah. So even though we're saying it's down 8% since the peak and 4% this 12 months, if you'd bought five years ago, you're still up 26%. Wow. That's all so right. it's not bad at all. Yeah. And Sydney, 19.7%. Of course, there's a couple of negative performers in, in terms of Darwin and Perth, which are two yes, markets we're yes, not actively yeah. in. But yeah, it's when you, when you can look at it in the big picture, and we've always said property is a long-term position. You're buying an asset that's expensive to transact on, so you're not buying it for the short term. Mm. Uh, five years of, uh, of changes in value shows that, that you've actually performed pretty well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. nice. Nice. Right. Oh, very good. Yeah. You bought at the right time, Louis? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'll, I'll finish this off so we can put some more data. What does that mean the median value is today, as at 30th of September? So, of course, Sydney always leads the way. Median value of a dwelling is 805000 uh, Melbourne at 634000 The next most expensive is Canberra at 604000 The combined, yeah, Canberra, all the pollies up there yeah. with their disposable income. <laughs> paying, paying them too much. <laughs> paying them too much. <laughs> Uh, and the lowest one, probably no surprise, Darwin's median dwelling value is at 389000 So the national average dwelling value is 524000 mm-hmm. uh, of which is you know, averaged out via the capital cities at 602000 and regional areas at 376000 mm-hmm. Right. Mm. Very good. Very Interesting good. facts and figures there. You'd, you'd have yep. to pay me a lot to live in Canberra too. <laughs> you'd have to pay me like that lot too. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Look, fine for a visit. I'm not sure if I'd want to live there, but the locals do tell me it's really, really nice out in the suburbs. So It's not, it's not too far from Perisher and Threadbow though, Yeah, if you're yeah. a skier. Couple couple you've got that couple time to go and do that though. That's yeah. the thing. <laughs> yeah, but you've got to be willing to uh, entertain that chilly weather the whole winter. Yep, <laughs> it's pretty flat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to throw to another quick break and we're going to be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning and investments. 
Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back, guys. We're now throwing it over to Louis with a hot topic, how to think like a financial advisor. Tell us more. All right. So this is exciting. Uh, the first thing I'll qualify is it's really how to think like a good financial advisor yeah. uh, because some people would see a negative <laughs> connotation in how to think like a financial you advisor. You should have put the good in the title, I think. Yeah. <laughs> What I mean by this is what I often find in helping people with their financial plans is that we start looking at um, people's capacity to get their next investment strategy underway, whether it's buying real estate or a share portfolio or contributions to super. I look at their financial resources and what capacity do they have to invest. I also look at the end game, so a financial model of their current financial position and projecting it forward to their retirement and seeing where they're going to end up on their current path. And for some people, if they're already on track to meet their goals, well then we don't need to invest. We can invest if we want to, but if there's not a need, for most people they're not on track to their uh, retirement goals. Or if we find that we are on track for what they said they wanted, well, all of a sudden they tend to want more. Yeah. <laughs> Funny that. That's right. So, uh, so I look at their financial resources and uh, and whether they can take their next step with that. Uh, when I then start taking them through, I then tend to find that I get some hurdles along the way, which ends up coming down to the individual person's comfort level with their next investment strategy. And it got me thinking too, okay, well, if I've gone through these processes to determine that a strategy is appropriate, why am I I getting resistance? What is holding people back from actually taking those next steps? And if you think like a financial planner, well, then there's no logical reason why you wouldn't take those next steps. Because what we're doing is we're looking at your financial resources and determining what opportunity do you have to optimize those resources. Mm -hmm. If you've got spare cash flow, well then let's put it into whatever is making the best return for you over the long term. And part of that is reducing debt, part of that is increasing assets, part of that is increasing super. Uh, If you have equity in your home, well let's look at whether we should use that or not. Uh, If you've got a large superannuation balance, let's look at if we can use that in a different way for a different investment strategy. Going through all these things. The other thing we're doing is looking at managing the risks. So if we are going to use equity in the home to borrow more money, what are the risks around it and how do we manage all those risks? And we come up with the plans so that nothing can go really wrong. If something goes a little bit wrong, well, what is the plan ahead of time to take actions to mitigate that risks. Mm. Things like emergency funds or contingency plans or an exit strategy from an investment strategy. Yeah. So we, we put all that together and so there is no logical reason if you think like a financial planner, if the opportunity to invest is there and all of the risks are managed, well then there's no logical reason not to 
maximize your resources Absolutely. and optimize and take all those investment strategies are there. Yeah. It's really, the, it's just a logical next step. The, That's the right. Mapping out the planning. It's That's all right. It's all very logical mm. and knowledge-based. And who can argue with that? The emotional side yeah, of us. absolutely. Thank yep. you. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up because if you've listened to anything I've said before, it's not all based on logic. Yeah. Very much, every human's decision is based on emotion, mm. not on logic. You can have all the logical reasons you like, but if the, uh, if the emotion is not comfortable, well, then it's not going to proceed. Mm. So how do you become emotionally comfortable with this? Well, actually, it can be quite hard because for a person who, uh, let's say a person is new into a job and has never had the amount of income that they now have. Mm -hmm. So they're not used to having extra money to do things with. So the thought of their first investment is massively different mm -hmm. and completely outside all of their experience and knowledge and past emotional states. Mm -hmm. yep. They're in a state and, and part of that person's identity is to identify with themselves and with other people that are short of cash flow. Mm -hmm. yep. So of course they're going to struggle with the idea of taking extra cash flow and putting it into something. Yep. For other people who have had the cash flow but have never accumulated assets, that's going to be a big deal for them. Mm. How, how do they see themselves as a person now that has assets that are maybe worth hundreds of thousands of dollars? Ask any first home buyer how it feels, and it feels massively different. Mm. Um, when it comes to the first investment or the next investment, uh, a lot of people in Australia can fairly easily identify with their first real estate investment. Mm. So they've got their home and then they buy their first investment property. They've got a home loan and they've got an investment loan. Talk about the second real estate investment. And at first they're excited. Great, I'm going to get another piece of real estate. Put the numbers in front of them and they realize, well, shit, I've got a home loan and I've got two investment loans. Yeah. Let's add them up. I've got one and yeah. a half million dollars of loans. Yeah. Quite frankly... Fuck me dead. <laughs> I've never had one and a half million dollars of debt before. My parents have never had one and a half million dollars of debt. Yep. My friends have never had a one and a half million dollars of debt. How am I going to be comfortable with that? And it is purely coming down to how you see yourself and what you're used to. Mm. I can tell you there are plenty of people out there who have one, two, three, four million dollars worth of debt. And they have very strong financial plans underpinning it. Mm. And they have very good risk management underneath it. And they have the exit strategies. So these strategies are achievable. It's about how you see yourself and your personal comfort level with doing it. Mm -hmm. The struggle is it's always hard doing something new. Yep. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's yep. financial things, if it's a, a new hobby, it feels different. Um, if it's a new exercise program or diet routine, it's hard. Mm -hmm. So I don't disagree. This is, this is hard stuff, coming to terms with a new way of seeing yourself or doing different things. Best way to overcome that? Get yourself a good mentor. Well, yeah. 
you can get a good mentor. There's plenty of different ways to do it. I'm a big believer in mentors and coaches, absolutely. And or a great financial advisor that's going to put that plan in place who, for you, right? Who should be acting <laughs> in a mentor role. Yeah, yeah. Yep. yeah financial yep. mentor. Absolutely. Well, the other thing is just don't add up the loan so you know that how much that value is. Yeah, Look that's at them right. as individual investments, well, I guess. Ignorance is not the right way to go. No, 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 no. Yeah. But if you sort of – I guess the thing is with that kind of debt, if I combined it, I'd start to panic. But if I saw them as sort of individual uh, dwellings or, you know, my investment as you know, that one investment – and I didn't put them all together and think about it like that, it wouldn't have the same I, impact to me. I would happily have four or five million dollars worth of debt if I knew the assets that were linked to those was worth double that. Yeah. Mm. Then I'd be comfortable because I'd say, well, I'm worth way more than what that debt is. Yeah, There's I no get problem. You. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you uh, what, the way I think about that. I think um, having five or six investment properties is way less risky than having one or two investment True. properties. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because if one of those properties is vacant and yep. you've only got one or two, well, then you're yeah, you're losing out. that much cash flow. Mm. Yep. But if you've got six investment properties and one of them's vacant, well, you've yeah. got the income from the other five yep. and your risk is so much more diversified and softened. Well, I know that you'd have to go and see you know, a financial advisor before investing in you know, getting this kind of advice by having extra properties Mm. but how much risk is too much risk for people you know how do you assess it what is the right amount of risk for people to take yeah there's probably both sides of that as well the the logical and the emotional yeah absolutely it's got to balance off somewhere in the middle i'm assuming you you have to take some risk but you've also got to be you know cautious about your own financial position so you don't crash and burn yeah absolutely and that's why we have the logical plans in place Mm. so what are the risks and and that comes down to the individual if your financial plan is fully dependent on your ability to earn an income, well then what are the risks to that income? Mm-hmm. Well, we look at people's job. What is your job? How secure is that job? What's your ability for future promotions? But also what's the risk of uh, redundancy or- Injury um, or disability. Or just periods of time in not having work. Mm. Because we have clients who are contractors or self-employed or, or C-level executives and they might be out of the workforce for three or four or six months at a time. Mm. That's just the normal period of time from ending one gig and starting the next gig. Mm. So what's our plan in place for that period of time? And what's the risk of a longer period of time? So if it's normal to have a three-month period of time uh, uh, between jobs, well, let's plan for nine months. Yep, so you're building Let's have a contingency plan in place. That's right. The lenders will be dictating a lot of this too with what they're willing to lend on, what servicing and, and everything else. So they want to know all of the, the borrower's you know, employment history, future incomes and everything before they'll lend a certain amount too. But is lending becoming easier at the moment? I wouldn't say easier. I would say it's, it's the process is, is, is actually getting to a point where it's, it's probably where it should be in terms of you know, the servicing calculators have, have come into line with what really people are spending and what they've got available. Uh, but there's at least a process now, so there's none of this risky lending out there, having people borrowing more than they can afford to and putting themselves at risk of, you know, if they lose a job or they, they have a, a, a some sort of financial hit that they can no longer service and they lose the loan. The banks are, fo- are having to now, you know, really screen every person before a loan's approved in mm. a way that makes sense from, from my perspective. Mm. So they're not putting people in risky positions where they're going to default. Yeah, mm. and, and I'd say that the process of borrowing is harder mm. because you have to fill in more forms, you have to provide a yeah. lot more evidence than what, uh, what we're used to. Um, and for some people, it's harder if they are in a bit more of a high-risk situation. But for a lot of people, compared to 
12 months ago, borrowing is, after all those things, is easier. Mm. Uh, people do have a higher uh, borrowing capacity. Banks will lend more money to you today than what they would 12 months ago. Yeah. I, I think that's the best way to answer it is the process is probably just as hard or harder, mm-hmm. but the the availability of the debt is, is probably slightly easier than mm-hmm. it was 12 months ago. Final parting words, Louis, on your final words of wisdom. Uh, don't neglect yourself and know yourself in, in all of your decisions. Uh, I mean, one of my philosophies is it's not about being good at money. It's about being good at life. If, if you're good at life, well, then you'll be good with your money, but you'll also be good with your health and your exercise and your career and your happiness and, and all these things. Yeah. So it's understanding... Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. So knowing yourself and where you are right now, um, but always getting better and changing yourself to, to improve. Good one. Okay, now on to our last topic for the day. You can't be serious. Heard of uh, swimming with the sharks? <laughs> yeah. What about entering the lion's den? Oh, oh I saw this. I saw this in the on the news. So. Yeah. Well, some lady out in New York thought it would be a good idea to jump the fence at the Bronx Zoo. What? New York City Bronx Zoo. Jump the fence into the lion's den and start <gasps> dancing and clapping and you waving at the lion in the den. <laughs> oh, what? Was she high? <laughs> no, and lucky he was a nice lion. Oh, the lion wow. was not impressed. He's looking at her going, who's this, who's this crazy? But uh, yeah. lucky for her, there was a 14-foot uh, moat. But it was uh, a dry moat in between. Right. So um, I would say that she was uh, 100% safe there. <laughs> no chance. No. Yeah, no. Not, not exactly the smartest thing to be doing. No. She lived to Lots tell the tale. Well, that's a potential Darwin Award. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yep, that's right. Um, I, I love using other experts for things. Uh, one person in Florida did not use an expert, and here's a really good reason not to fix your s- stuff yourself. He tried to fix his own clothes dryer which had stopped working. Mm. So he started to pull it apart to find that the reason it had stopped working is that a snake had become Ooh. trapped inside you his clothes dryer. <laughs> wow. Ooh. I'd be like, turn that on. Yeah. <laughs> Cook it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was trapped in the air filter part. So he started taking it apart and then he, um, wow. he felt something moving inside. Oh, uh, and uh, he because he'd half opened it, uh, the snake managed to get itself free oh and God. slither yeah. away. Oh, right. Would have been oh. out of there. Absolutely. <laughs> well, let's get away from scary animals and go to a happy place. Yay. And where's the happiest place on earth? Disneyland. Ah, you picked it in one. <laughs> well, for one person, though, he didn't deem it happy enough, so he decided to make it even more happy if he could. Uh-oh. Uh, so a 32-year-old Swiss man was visiting Disneyland. This was in Paris and decided to make his experience just that little bit happier by taking LSD with his girlfriend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, and it led to him going on quite a trip that, uh, <laughs> that involved a huge search party of 130-odd people, including firefighters, divers, policemen. What? All sorts of Disneyland employees. Yeah, he, he went missing. Cause he the, went the, missing? Yeah, it was God, quite a trip, goodness. as I said. Yeah, oh, floated uh, away. Wow. So finally found uh, a few hours later uh, in the middle of the night, uh, a mile away, naked, covered in scratches, and no memory of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wowie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Has anyone seen that? Uh, <laughs> Has anyone seen the Disney? Was it Fantasia? Was it Fantasia? I reckon yeah. they're Fantasia? on something with that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah for sure. For sure. Yeah. Oh. Well, 
look all right, guys. Don't take the brown acid. (laughs) (laughs) Going to have to call it uh, now. Call it quits. And, um, you know, have a fabulous weekend to everyone. We'll be back next week to do it all over again. Sounds like fun. (laughs) Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks. Broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria, you're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner.